Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this grand reminder of what we believe and the opportunity for us just to vocalize it in song, to embed it in our hearts all over again. The greatness of our God and what he has done for us and what we are free to believe and do believe and as a result have our lives entirely, radically transformed to the glory of God. So we thank you for that and we thank you for this opportunity now, Lord, to um, laser our attention on what we believe about the church and what we are called to believe and what has been revealed to us in the scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that you will guide us by your strength, by your power, by your grace and mercy. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. And amen. Well, I haven't had a chance actually to say Happy New Year to my dearly beloved church family. And so I I do that right now. I wish you a a very happy new year. I trust that this will be a, a year of great growth in the Lord and uh, strengthening in him. It's, uh, it's been a, a long time since I've seen so many of you. I miss you so much. And uh, feel free to drop me a line once in a while and say hello. Uh, because I know you get to see me, but I don't get to see you. And so I, I long for you so much. And um, another exciting thing, of course, is that since the last lockdown, uh, the audience has, has more than cut quadrupled here in the, in the building. So we've gone from two people to nine people, which is really exciting, uh, and, and that's, that's something great too. Um, I'm also going to attempt to do something uh, a little bit uh, ill-advised this morning. Uh, I'm going to try and chew gum and walk at the same time, or actually, more particularly, I'm going to try to preach this sermon and run the slides as well, and... This whole operation or idea is causing our tech team to break out in hives, and I understand that, but I'll try and do what I can do. So if I get somehow lost, you'll understand, or if the slides get lost, it's my fault, not our tech people's fault. Um, I think, uh, as, I, as I think about this past year, the word that, that I would say has characterized the year uh, for me is the word expert. Expert has, has been the word that, that everybody's been used. So, there's so many experts. We're told, listen to the experts. And everybody's an expert on everything. People are an expert on how to govern. People are expert on how to read epidemiology charts and stats. And, uh, and by the way, everybody's an expert on the church all of a sudden. People who've never darkened the door of a church ever are suddenly experts on church and how to do church. Or those who are casual attenders know everything about the church and who the church is and what the church is and what the church should be doing or not doing. Right up to, the, right up to seasoned theologians. Everybody has become an expert in 2020. Combined with our cultural addiction to identity uh, transitioning, self-identifying, uh, reversals of identity, This combination of expert about church and identity transformation or transitioning has produced a large appetite in our culture for subjective reassignment of the meaning of church, particularly in the world. The great reset of the identity of the church 
It seems like every and any hack out there is determining who and what the church is. So it seemed obvious to us that it might be the right time for us to have a sermon series on the church. And we're calling it Identity Crisis, What is the Church? And um, of course, all of this uh, chatter that's going on is certainly predicated on the age-old um, satanic question, did God really say? And so in this truth decay time that we are living in, where objective truth seems to be an obstacle to more convenient truth, which isn't the whole truth, I'm really hopeful and we're prayerful uh, as, a, as a leader team here at Calvary that that this series will help to solidify in our hearts and our minds who we really are, what we really believe, and how we're really to live and act. So welcome to our winter series, Identity Crisis, what it means to be the bride of Christ. Now, by the way, this is going to be a very teachy journey for the most part because it's doctrine. It's the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. Uh, doctrine, in fact, the word doctrine means teaching. So it, it will necessarily be rather teachy, but, but I'm committing to you to, to seek to make plenty of applications so that we're not just, our heads are not just in the clouds, but, but we keep our feet on the ground and we take what we learn and we answer the questions, so, so what? Now what? What does this mean? How should we be living? And, and I, I commit to you to try and do that through this series uh, of, of doctrine. The truth of the matter is, though, we can't avoid doctrine. We must not avoid doctrine. In fact, we're exhorted in the scriptures to make much of doctrine for the sake of our growth. Much of teaching. Um, we're not, so that we're not tossed around by every idea that is put forth out there. By every expert that suggests they know better than us what the church actually is. In fact, faithful servants of God are called upon in the scriptures to teach sound doctrine to make sure that we're teaching sound doctrine so that our belief, our system, our faith won't be maligned and that we can spot false teachers and that we will refrain from granting to people what they simply want to hear according to their itching ears. People want to shed good teaching in favor of their own subjective ideas. During this series, I'm going to lean very heavily uh, on a uh, for our, the doctrinal organization of our study on a book entitled Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, a Contemporary Ecclesiology by John Hammett, uh, written in 2005. And I, have, I t intentionally picked this highly acclaimed book to be sort of our true north guide in terms of structuring our lessons uh, as it relates to denominationalism particularly because, after all, we're a Baptist church. By, I assume, and by, I hope, scriptural conviction. And, and we'll look there. I mean, scripture is king. Scripture's rule. Uh, by the way, being a Baptist church, it, a little known fact, perhaps, is there's more Baptists in the United States than there are Canadians in Canada. So uh, there's a lot of Baptists around. And... Um, we need to examine how our denominational beliefs and our practices stack up against the scriptures. Um, interestingly as well, not that this matters so much to Canada, but Baptists form the majority denomination 
in the United States Congress with 66 sitting members claiming to be Baptists. 88% claiming to be Christian. Not the same in Canada. As I've been surveying uh, social media, particularly Calvary social media and Calvary social media conversations, it's become apparent to me that we are uncertain of our identity. We're not really sure who we are. Uh, we're not really sure of our place in the world. We're also woefully unprepared to face and endure opposition. We are simply falling short of the glory of God in our practice of church. So my heart concern, my heart desires to let God speak for his church and let the scriptures establish our identity. So today's sermon in particular in this series is called The Nature of the Church. And the big question that we're looking at today is what makes a church a church according to the scriptures? Because if you don't know what or who you are or what you believe, it's impossible to know what to do. So how important is the church? Well, uh, you're going to find out everywhere in Scripture that the church is God's passion. The church is absolutely God's passion. So how important is it? Well, if it's God's passion, uh, and how important should it be to us? I would suggest of vital importance. In... Um, Part of the wrestle that goes on in, and has increasingly gone on in, in the areas of, of church and the erosion of good doctrine and good teaching about the church has to do with what's happening in our culture and how people are designing and strategizing for church. There are a lot of churches that are strategizing basically according to pragmatics. They're, they're, the identity of their local church is based on pragmatics. In other words, what works is the identity of that church. There are other churches that are, are forging or forming the identity of their church on the basis of relevancy. What sells? And then there are still other church settings, local church settings, that are actually structuring the identity of their church on the basis of ambition. Uh, what moves us forward? Or what, what will make me uh, better? Or make me uh, uh, richer? Ambition. What will help us get ahead? In many cases, one or all of these are driving the re-identifying re of the church. And these are grand, great dangers among us. Another question that we want to look at or another correction that we want to make or understand is why this church and not another church? Why do you attend Calvary Baptist Church? Why is that your church and not another church? After all, there are 58 churches in Oshawa. Um, by the way, uh, if you do a Google search, you will find out that our 301 campus is rated higher than our 300 campus. So you might want to consider where you establish yourself in, in our own church. Um, and, and another uh, concerning thing for all of us here at Calvary is um, if you do a, a Google search on the 10 best churches in, in uh, Oshawa, uh, according to Yelp, in the Durham region, there are 66, and we don't make the cut in any of those. In fact, the J JWs, which aren't even a church, are ahead of Calvary Baptist on Yelp. I'm not sure, technical guys, how that works out, but we might want to look at that. But why Calvary? Why Calvary? So these are questions that we want to look at. And then there are people out there who say, I don't need a church. I, I, I know God. I know Jesus. I don't need a church. I'm a Christian. What's all the fuss about church being essential? Well, 
Some of the church fathers, um, or a church father by name of Cyprian, writes this, you cannot have God as father unless you have church as mother. Stafford, in a Christianity Today article, writes this, a living, breathing congregation is the only place to live in a healthy relationship to God. That is because it is the only place on earth where Jesus has chosen to dwell. Pay attention to that. Listen to that. And John Hammond in his book writes, Since the church is God's creation, it must be ordered and operated according to his instructions. So what does the Bible then have to say about the church? Well, it is Jesus who gave us this statement in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We are under significant and severe restrictions on our identity or at least, the, at least the full expression of our identity as a church in these particular days. Uh, but Jesus, of course, used this word church. I will build my church. We're going to look at this word for a few moments. This is particularly important because the word church, ecclesia, is uh, uh, the word Jesus chose to use, which of course is a translation of the word for God's people in the Hebrew Old Testament text, translated, say with me, translated into Greek, and the Greek translation is called the Septuagint. Now you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Hebrew was translated into Greek in the Septuagint. Jesus uses the word that the translators of the Old Testament used to translate the word for God's people. Uh, the word we're going to look at in a moment is kahal, and it was translated into ecclesia. And when Jesus stood before his disciples on that rock outcropping in Caesarea Philippi, he used the same word. And we need to study that word to understand what it actually means. By the way, throughout the New Testament, of course, uh, the, epistle, the writers of the epistles, Paul in particular, develops the meaning of the word, uh, supporting it by practice. In, in Romans 1, 6-7, for instance, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called, note that word, who are called, that word is kletos in Greek, to belong to Jesus Christ. It gives us a, a it helps to, to build some supporting structure around the word ecclesia and what it means. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians, to the ecclesia, to the church, the same word Jesus used, in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be, kletos, his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So this word for church is called out, or it's a compound word, kletos ek, ekklesia, ekklesia, called out. It's used 114 times in the New Testament. Three times it's used for a secular gathering. Twice it's used to refer to the Old Testament people of God. And all the rest of the times, it's to refer to the actual church of Jesus Christ. But to understand the nature of the church of Jesus Christ, this word means a people who are called out. Now, 
this word called out, ecclesia, is, is not a Christian word per se. It was an ancient uh, word used in ancient Greece. Um, and what it meant, they used this word regularly to mean an assembly of people. It always meant an assembly of people. It never meant one person. It always meant an assembly of people. And it meant in particular people who were called out citizens who came together to conduct business. Now this helps us to think through what Jesus meant when he said, I'm going to build my church. He says, I'm going to build my called out people, called out of the world, who will come together and conduct the business of God. That gives it the religious meaning that Jesus intended. A word chosen for the gathering of believers. God's people in Hebrew, as we talked about before, there were two possible words, edah and kahal. Edah meaning community or just, and was translated by Greek into synagogue, the Hebrew word edah. But kahal was the word chosen by the translators of the Septuagint from Hebrew to Greek, the choice that Jesus used, the choice word Jesus used, which meant only those who, are, who have heard the call and are following it. Not just a gathering, not just an assembly, but those people who are actually have heard the call and are following it. A very specific people, this compound word. Not just any group of people or any group of Christians, but an organized assembly. Notice what, Paul or what uh, Luke writes in Acts. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, appointed elders for them in each ecclesia, each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. There was an organization of each church. Note that there were churches, each church. And those who accepted his message uh, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So you have this picture developing in the New Testament as Revelation is progressing to an idea of the church is not just any group of people or just any group of Christians, but a group of or, uh, organized assembly with leaders and recording of growth. But not just an organized assembly of Christians, but also for a purpose. Advertising the glory of God's presence and purposes on earth. Note these scripture texts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Until I come, Paul says, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. In 1 Timothy 5.16, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church, ecclesia, can help those widows who are really in need. There was a meeting of needs of the truly needy, not reckless or sinful. And then those who had been scattered, Acts 8.4, preached the word wherever they went. So you're going to see developing now through these scripture texts that a fuller meeting of church is those, that assembly, that called out assembly of people who are learning doctrine, practicing fellowship, the Lord's table, prayer, the reading of scripture, serving widows and needy, and spreading the gospel. This is a robust picture of the identity of the church. And in Ephesians 3.10, this robust purpose, this lofty purpose is given to us. It is 
His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, ecclesia, the manifold or many facets of God's wisdom should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. What a lofty responsibility and purpose has been granted to the church of Jesus Christ by the living God. Now the church, of course, in the New Testament is referenced in two forms. The universal church in which all of the redeemed are placed. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are, you are placed into the church, the universal church, which is called the invisible church of Jesus Christ. And then there's, of course, the local or visible expression. Often there are churches and then a city church, the, the churches of a city are referred to, but each church is fully a church, is fully a church, in the New Testament. And 90 times of all the references, the 114 references in the New Testament are referring to the local church. So some people will say, well, gathering is not essential to Christianity or the church. Let's just pause here for a moment and note that what we have learned at the very least is that gathering is what church means and how Christianity is practiced in constantly connecting with one another. Celebration and scattering is the pattern, but we are called to do the purposes of God as an assembly. So we come to the so what portion of this section. A church as compared to just a group of Christians is an organized gathering of people called out of the world by God to follow Jesus Christ and to represent the presence and glory of God on the earth. Let's be abundantly clear. The local church does not depend on a geographic location, but it must be organized and include provision for multifamily gatherings for worship, i.e. from other households, for praise, for proclamation, for religious rites and ceremonies, for mutual growth, and for fully involved ministry to one another. That is the identity of the church based on the word ecclesia, based on that one word. If that's all we had, we have this. But we have more. There are images throughout the scriptures that help us to understand uh, through human pictures and human imagery, ideas of, of what the church really is. The church is the people of God, God's family, people belonging to God, people of the Trinity. We are people of Christ. We are people of the Holy Spirit. This is an awesome image of who we are, the people of the God of the universe, of creator God. And notice what, how Peter writes, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy belonging to God as trophies of his mercy. That's who the church is. This is an amazing illustration. And the church connects 
to the Old Testament people of God as people of God. From the Old Testament conception of a people called Israel, when God told Abraham that he was going to, he, he called Abraham and told him he would make him a great nation, the people of God, through to the um, New Testament, new creation in Galatia, as, as it's recorded in Galatians 6.15. The church is made possible by Christ. So we have this continuity with the Old Testament people of God. Then to a new creation called the church, made possible by Christ, which becomes the discontinuity, because we are birthed by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, or at the coming of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit into the people of God, which is a discontinuity from the Old Testament, whereby the Holy Spirit was not indwelling the people of God. And so we have this new thing called the church. So what are the implications then to our identity in light of this? Well, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, it says in Acts 2.21, and will be made and will become the people of God, a people, not a collection of individuals, but a people. And this people, of course, um, are, are not just any gathering, and they're certainly not a human institution because the church is God's church. We must continue to pause and let these things sink into our hearts and our minds. This church, our church, Calvary Baptist Church, is God's church. So tread carefully. Identify cautiously. Tamper with at your peril. And as a result of being God's people, we are called upon to behave in a way that honors and glorifies him, that identifies us as his people. We are called, therefore, to be holy, set apart for his purposes, because God is holy. We are to exclude those who refuse to be holy, those who are unrepentant sinners. They are to be excluded from the church, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. We are to be loving. We are to demonstrate the nature and character of God by how we love. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and body and strength. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to be a family. We have become the children of God. John 1, 12. Those who received him, to them he gave the right to become children in the family of God, the people of God. It's among the most obvious images of our conduct. We call each other father and mother and sister and brother. We are related in a unique relationship, but one that we understand based on our own families. The closeness of the church is the same as the closeness of a family in many cases, even closer because of the relationship we have with Christ. We are also a fellowship. A fellowship sharing an in, com an in common life, common life together with one another, the one another life. It radically alternate, it radically um, alter, alterates our relationships with one another. There are at least 30 different commands in the scriptures on how we are to treat one another just because we are the people of God. But another image is we are the body of Christ. 
relation, this, this defines our relationships with one another. We are not isolated, rogue churches ever. Each church is a complete, each local church is, is complete uh, in church status, but we are connected together. Satan's uh, current game plan is to divide and conquer, and we seem to be playing his game very well to our detriment. What do the scriptures say to us in terms of the body of Christ? Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. In Christ we who are many form one body. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Is not the cup of thanksgiving in reference to our Lord's table and communion is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. A participation with Christ and one another in the blood of Christ. And is, it, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ because there's one loaf and we are many, are one body for we all share the one loaf. And then in baptism, for we were all baptized by one spirit uh, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. Then there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. So that there should be no division in the body. Note that. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So what? There are three emphases out of this collection of scripture that teaches us about the body of Christ. Unity, diverse unity, and mutuality. Each of these are critical to us. We are, it is the emphasis on the church is unity. Because we are a body, we are one faith. By the way, I don't accept the term multi-faith. It's a human construct. It's not a true word. It's not a true concept at all. There is no multi-faith in this world. There is only one faith, and that faith is in Jesus Christ, in the true God of the universe. There are no multi-faiths, one faith. And it's expressed in the church as we gather together around the Lord's table. It's commonly experienced in our baptism. But it's also not just a unity in Christ, but a diverse unity, or a, a, a unity in diversity in the Manifold wisdom of God. He has placed us together in communities, in gatherings, in assemblies with diverse gifts, diverse abilities, diverse contributions to the unity of the faith to overcome our natural tendency to divide, our natural tendency to uh, uniformity. We are called to be um, uh, in, in unity with diversity, and then mutuality and love and care, belonging to each other. No one belongs to themselves alone. We belong to each other. No mind your own business in the church of Jesus Christ. People of the church are your business, are my business. Now, by the way, within the local church, unity of belief is particularly narrow. Um, this unity of diversity provides for us a rationale for other denominations. There is within the fullness of the 
church of Christ or the body of Christ, a diversity of giftedness and a diversity of, of uh, practice. And uh, so there's a, a, an acceptable unity uh, with those who perhaps don't practice exactly the same as we do, but there's no, there's no allowability in the scriptures of a unity with those who deny Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who are outside of that. But within a local church, there's a particularly, a particular uh, urgency to 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 be unified around uh, the doctrine and the teachings of that local church, so that it might not divide. In fact, throughout of church history, local churches have established their own statements of faith and commitments and covenants whereby individuals uh, commit themselves for the sake of unity to agree together to believe certain things. We can look back at some older statements. The Second London Confession in 1677 was written this way. The church members do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ giving up themselves to the Lord and one another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. In the New Hampshire Baptist Convention of 1833, we do therefore in his strength engage that we will exercise a mutual care as members one of another to promote the growth of the whole body. These are unity statements of promise to abide by the teachings of the church. At Calvary Baptist Church, we believe a New Testament church is a community of baptized believers voluntarily associated for mutual edification, meaning growth, and care. Finally, the last of the images that we have time to look at today is there's uh, more to our identity, and that is the temple, the temple of the Spirit, the church as the building and div uh, divine intimacy. Peter writes, or, or Jesus states, to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And uh, we have the first indication that church is a God-ordained building program. And Paul develops that later in the epistles, and, and certainly um, Peter as well. For we are co-workers in God's service. Listen, you are God's field. You are God's building. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. By the way, uh, the, the Bible indicates that diversity is actually necessary for unity, holding together. We all hold each other together by our diversity, and it's necessary for maturity. And then finally, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Note that. A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, he's not talking about bricks and mortar here. We're not talking about physical buildings, physical locations, but what we are talking about is locations inhabited by gatherings of believers called the church, where God chooses to dwell on earth. So the church then is a building, a very special building, God's temple, a spiritual house. Again, not bricks and mortar, but a people 
living stones of indwelt believers being built into a spiritual house, gathering together to practice the business of God. And again, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be, so that when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, Paul goes on to say what, what you are to do. And then, of course, in Romans, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So what do we, what do we learn from the, this section of Scripture in terms of us being the temple of the Spirit? We are therefore a worshiping people because the temple was always a place of worship. So we are a worshiping people. The place where, a temple is a place where deity dwelt. It's a symbol of the God it represented. Now think about this for a second, Calvary. Calvary Baptist Church, Calvary Baptist local church is a place, a location, a gathering of people, an assembling of people, a called out people, where the creator God of the universe has determined to dwell. Think of that. The God of the universe, by means of his Holy Spirit, let that sink into us. And we gather together for the purpose of worship. We are a holy priesthood. By the way, Leaders are never called priests in the Bible. There's a reason for that. Because we are all priests. Leaders are called pastors. Leaders are called elders. Leaders are called overseers. Same, same people. But they're never called priests. The, the, the idea and notion of priests, you know, why, why this church and not that church? Well, this is a, one of those particular reasons. In the, uh, over, the, over time, the the Greek word for uh, elder, which is presbyteros, was, was shortened to presbyter. And that presbyter word was shortened to priest or became priest. And then, therefore, priest really meant elder, but it wasn't properly used. It hasn't been properly used. And it's been used as some sort of special order of people. No, God's people are all priests. We are all called to the priesthood. So as, as a kingdom of priests, we don't operate independently, but collectively, competently. And we are ministers to the world and each other. And then we are visible representations of Christ, where God meets with us and we meet with him out to the world. And we meet him out to the world. So Christians, you say, what's the difference in Christians having the indwelling spirit and a church being the dwelling of the spirit? Listen, Christians have the Holy Spirit, but a Christian is not a church. Our collective called out ones are the Calvary Church. And we are a spiritual house in Oshawa. The whole building is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And the church is the gathering, the place whereby we are fitted to become a better dwelling for God. Well, beloved, we're going to have to leave it there for today. And uh, I just want to skip down here and, and leave you with our last um, statement of identity. And we'll, uh, we'll leave it there for today. So the church is God's church. 
It's not ours to reevaluate. It's not ours to reimagine. It's not ours to re-identify. It's a trust. A trust that's been given to us through the scriptures, through the revelation of God. God has spoken to us. Right now we're limited in celebration, limited in ministry to one another. Suspended gatherings is a very serious thing. I believe the church is on trial and the world is under judgment. And that's the time we find ourselves in. But the church and its identity has not changed. The church is an organized gathering of people called out of the world by God to follow Jesus Christ and to represent the presence and the glory of God on the earth. And it's pictured as the only people of God. The church is the only people of God in the earth, the only body and bride of Christ, and the only temple of the Holy Spirit of God. So we must not tamper with the uniqueness of our identity to somehow fit more relevantly or pragmatically into the world. A world we were never made for. No, if you don't fit, there's a reason for that. Because the church, we were never made for this world. We were made to glorify God in this world and to be together in a world yet to come forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your instruction to us today. We love you and we bless your name. And we thank you that you have given us doctrine. You have given us distinct revelation. You've revealed to us the truth, the whole truth, with respect to the church. Its identity, who we are, the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Spirit. Oh God, lofty images, too, almost too, too great for us to, to contemplate. We are a people called out of the people of Oshawa in general to be your special people, your special possession, to worship, to fellowship, to minister to one another. God, we recognize that there are severe limitations been placed on the full expression of the identity of the church. Yet, Lord, we are called right now to maximize uh, in every way the identity of the church in our community, whether we are all together or not. And so I pray, O oh God, that you will give and grant us a, a passion this is our moment. This is the moment for the church to shine while others are doing so poorly, Lord. I pray that we will not. For your honor and your glory, may we shine the light of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have, oh God, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.